Yes, Jesus, we wait on you. Wherever you are right now, I just encourage you to be aware of the presence of God around you. No matter who you are, whether you go to church every week or you haven't stepped in one for years, just be so aware of the presence of God all around you. He is so for you. He is so for you. He just wants to lavish his love upon you. I love the words to this song. The truth of this is, whilst we're singing that we just want to be where God is, he also just wants to be where you are. He desires you. He desires relationship with you. So from the position of your heart, just just reach out to him this morning. He's waiting for you. presence there is fullness of joy there is healing thank you Jesus everyone. It's nice to be with you. There's a small crowd here today. It's basically the family of everyone involved this morning. And it is my pleasure to be, to be speaking to you today. And so at the end of my message, we'll be taking communion. So just be prepared for that communion. You know, we are always in communion with God and and taking communion is a, a symbolic act. It's one of, the, um, one of the few things Jesus asked us to do as a ritual is take communion. And the other one is baptism. But for us, it, communion can be, you know, we don't need the, you know, the, the same cracker we have at church every week so you know if you're having your breakfast communion can be that no i'm not saying that to be offensive to anybody but um you know you could be having juice and toast and that could be that could be your communion today so when we get to the end of my message we'll be doing that so just to give you a little bit of a heads up i just want to recap last week uh john spoke last week from luke 15 one of my favorite chapters in the bible and John and I spoke about this a few weeks ago and, and I asked him which part of Luke 15 he was wanting to talk on and I kind of was a bit 
I don't, I don't think I was manipulative, but I kind of said, I would really like to preach on the third parable. And John was like, I was already thinking that. That's kind of what he said to me. That's my story, and that's what I'm going to be continuing to go with. So, but he spoke on the first two parables, which were uh, the, the farmer with his 100 sheep, and then the woman with her 10 coins. And so I'm speaking on the third parable in there, but I just want to recap a couple of things John mentioned last week. And I thought it was great that John said that the groups of people within the parables, specifically the, the lost sheep and the sheep that were already found and, and the lost coin and the coins that weren't lost, actually would have been very relevant to the groups of people that Jesus was talking to. So in verse 1 and 2, it's talking. Jesus is talking to the sinners and tax collectors, but also there's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And so the parables actually relate quite strongly. There's quite a connection to the groups of people he's talking to, which is, is fascinating. John also mentioned how the sinners and tax collectors were drawing near to hear what Jesus had to say. And he challenged us you know, as a, an act of activation, what are we doing to, to cause sinners and tax collectors to draw near to us? And it reminded me of a quote uh, that I've read and I've used before. Those who follow Jesus should attract the same people Jesus attracted and frustrate the same people Jesus frustrated. I got a strange comfort from that, from that little quote. Um, those who follow Jesus should attract the same people. We are to follow Jesus. We're called to do it. We're called to, to follow Jesus. So therefore, we should be attracting people to draw near to us, to hear what we've got to say. And maybe frustrate those who don't think they need it. Both the two parables last week, the, the sheep and the coins, they both end with a reference to repentance, which I think is quite fascinating. And... I'm going to come back to that topic towards the end of this, this message. Also, something of note is the, the gradual intensifying of Jesus' shock factor. He starts with the sheep. And everyone's like, yeah, well, we can relate to that, sheep. You know, we, we live in, in ancient Israel. They wouldn't have called it ancient, of course. But they, they, they knew, they were understanding of the times. And Jesus used sheep as a metaphor. And as John said, it was a very relevant illustration at the time so they would have been i guess not offended by that the very next parable jesus says and a woman who has 10 coins and uses a woman as the as the god figure so i imagine immediately he would have put especially the pharisees on edge with that um much like if any one of us was to to use a woman to depict god there would be some people that would maybe have a problem with that. I just point them back to Jesus. Okay, let's pick it up from verse 11, where Jesus talks about, presents the third parable in this, in this series. So Luke 15, 11 to 32, this is the lost son. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The youngest son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. I'm going to try very hard 
to not stop and talk in the middle of this. It's going to be very difficult for me because there's so much to say <laughs> already. But I'm, I'm going to try and get to the end and then bring some points. Um, but as I said, Jesus was, was progressively becoming more shocking with, with his illustrations here. Anyway, I'll continue. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into, the, into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. In all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet, when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Wow. What a story. And where to start? Where on earth do you start with a, with a story like this? And I was even asking Michelle last night, like, I've got these points I want to bring out. Like, where do you begin? Where do you possibly begin? I'll start with where I what I was sort of saying before I mentioned it, that this story is offensive on so many levels. If you can imagine the people listening to this story in that day and age, we've got this son who has the audacity to say to his father, basically, I wish you were dead. That's basically what he's saying. It's like the height of disrespect happening right from the onset. And I could imagine the Pharisees listening to that going, well, we, we know how this is going to end. Surely, 
this particular son then spirals to the lowest of the low. Not only is he squandering the money, but he ends up working on a pig farm, which to a, a Jew was, was completely like pigs are an unclean animal. They are forbidden to raise pigs as an occupation. Like this would have been the most shocking thing that he was even working on the pig farm, but then it goes another level lower and he wants to eat the pig food. So we've got this completely shocking and no doubt disturbing picture of the son in this moment, completely offensive to, to Jesus' audience. I, I would imagine the sinners and tax collectors would probably have been going, ugh, they, they would have been shocked by this as well. No doubt. That was no doubt. My voice broke, but yes, no doubt. And then at the end of the story, we have this other surprising little shocking detail of the older brother refusing the hospitality of his father. Now, that's probably hidden to some and probably even hidden to the people hearing it. But the older son said, no, I'm not going into the party. I'm, I'm not doing that. And actually, you, you can see in what he's saying to the father. He's like, all these years, I've done this for you. Basically, you can see in between the lines, where's my blessing? What have you done for me? You haven't even done this for me. And so even that kind of attitude towards the father would also have been, been shocking. So I want to talk about the similarity of both sons. And you probably say, what? There's nothing similar about them. One's done everything right and one's done everything wrong. But I want to start by saying that both sons rejected the father's love. I just want you to pause and think about it. In, in what ways did they do that? I've kind of already hinted at it. Well, one's obvious. One leaves and goes off on this self-fulfilling mission to, you know, do as much as he can and, you know, self-discovery is, is what he's doing. He's, he's trying to find out about the world and just completely ignoring everything he had behind. But the older son, as I said, he, he refused to enter the party at the end. So he rejected the father's love in a different way by wanting the blessing of what his father had for him. Well, where's my share of the estate? And he's wanting the blessing that comes from that relationship without wanting the relationship. And if you go back and look at his conversation, what he's saying to the father, you can see that, that his motives there are, are not good. You could, you could argue that both sons were completely in it for themselves. Again, the son that runs off, that's obvious. The son staying at home was in it for himself. Brian Simmons, who put the Passion Translation together, he, he worded it this way. While the younger brother pursued self-discovery, the older brother believed in moral conformity. Just, just doing everything right, doing it by the book. Thinking that that would earn favour from his father. When in truth, both sons needed the revelation of grace. It's, it's completely clear that neither of them understood it. By the end of the story, I think one of them understands grace. Now compare these two groups of people to those listening to Jesus. The, one, the groups of people pursuing self-discovery 
and those just thinking that they're ticking everything off and doing it correctly, trying to earn their way in. You've got, similar to the, the parables John preached on last week, we've got the two halves of the story, so to speak, the two different parties in the, both previous stories represented by the people listening and again with this one as well. So now I want to talk about the contrast between the two sons. I'll talk about the younger son first. The younger son got himself lost. And unlike the, the previous two parables, he got himself lost on purpose. Okay, the, the sheep didn't know what it was doing. And a coin obviously doesn't know what it's doing. But this son got lost on purpose, very deliberately. And I'd say that in that moment, this son forgot who he was. He forgot that he was a son. And off he goes on his journey. But we learn throughout this story that he never stopped being a son. He was always a son. And at the end of the story, he's welcomed back in. He, he doesn't get the, the reprimand that, that even he was expecting. He was welcomed back in. The younger son rehearsed a speech. I, I, I don't believe the younger son decided to, you know, that he sat there and had an epiphany of, you know, a revelation of, you know, I'm, I'm feeling really guilty or anything like that. I, I think this speech that he rehearsed was based purely on, on selfish motives. He was hungry. He was thinking about how good he had it at home and he decided to go home. It's not like he... I don't, I don't think he became what we would call a better person in that moment. He, he needed it. He was, he was in a bad way. So he rehearses this speech and he was going to say three things in this speech. The three things were, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. Okay, well, that's a fair enough thing to say. Then he says, I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And then he, the third thing he was going to say was, please take me on as a hired servant. They're the three things that he was rehearsing. He said, I will go home and I'm going to say these three things to my father. And what happens when he sees his father? Does anyone know? How much of that does he get out? He doesn't say all three things. He starts to. He says the first two things. But then the father goes, quick, get the fattened calf. Get a ring and a robe and some sandals. He actually interrupts the son's speech. If you're casually reading this, you might miss that. But the father interrupt. Why would the father interrupt his speech? I've heard it said that because if he was to become a hired servant, which is all he wanted to become, he said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'll just make me like a hired servant. Then he might have believed that his acceptance back into the father's home, back into the father's love, would have been based on his efforts. But it's not based on our efforts. It's because God is love. So in this story, the father just welcomes him home. He's not interested in the entire story. He just welcomes him home. He interrupts the speech and just welcomes him home. And what does he give him? A ring and a robe and sandals. Sandals, slaves were barefoot. So the son wanted to be a slave 
And he's like, get some sandals for his feet. He's elevating him. A ring and a robe. A robe signifying royalty. He's back in. And a ring, which actually means he could make transactions in the father's name. The ring. He was, the son was back in with, with barely a, you know, a blubbering apology. It's not even there. It's basically, and I'll get to this in a moment, it's basically a confession and then some, some groveling, which the father's like, nah, enough of that. Come in. Now let's talk about the, the older son. The older son that stood there saying, all sons matter. I've been striving. I've not been resting. I've been trying to earn my way in, always trying to do the right thing. Work, work, work. Wanting the reward above the relationship. This is the oldest son. Again, as I said, this is like the, the, uh, the Pharisees listing who would have thought that they were doing all the things right to enter the kingdom of God. Before I continue, who are you in this story? And I say this to those listening at home. You might be the older son or you might be the younger son. Who are you in this story? Try and place yourself where you think you are. Because I can tell you now, the Pharisees would not have been thinking, oh, that's us. They would not have been thinking that. They would have been thinking, these are two groups of people that we have nothing in common with. That's what they would have thought. I read this parable to a year 10 student a few years ago. This student had some questions, was you know, trying to learn, actually had a keen desire, was not a Christian, not a believer, but a keen desire to know more about, about God. And I said, well, here's something about God. And I read, I read it out to him. And he got really annoyed at the end of it. He's like, the older son should have got all that. I'm like, oh, dude, you don't get it. You, you know, th- that's what God is like. And he's like, well, that's not fair. And I'm like, uh, well, that's God. God will accept you regardless. You think, well, at least Christians, at least we get it right, don't we? I think. Uh, Philip Yancey tells a story in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He tells of a preacher who deliberately changed the details of this parable to make his point. So he read it just like I read it before, but then twisted it around at the end just to to see what reaction he would get. So he said he had the father put the ring and the robe on the elder brother and killed the the fattened calf in honor of the elder brother's years of faithfulness and obedience. And then a woman in the back of the church, in the back of the sanctuary, yelled out, that's the way it should have been written. Wow. May we never... (laughs) come from a position of thinking no one else deserves it because we do. Wow. It seems that there are non-Christians like my student and even Christians like this woman in the story who don't fully understand grace. Much like the older brother and the younger brother didn't fully understand it. Some see grace as a license to sin. I mean, if that's the case, then clearly Jesus is Here's your license to sin. Of course he's not doing that. Jesus is not giving anyone a license to sin. No, this was not Jesus giving instructions on how to live your life. He's not saying, 
great idea of people. You can run off and do whatever you want. He's not saying that. He's, he's not saying that. He's not telling the parable to say, go and be like this son, or, or maybe stay at home and be like that son. He's not doing that. He, these are not models for you to follow to be at all. He's telling this parable to reveal the Father. That's what he's doing. He's explaining what the Father is like, showing us who the Father is. So if you are a lost son, or maybe you are an older brother, Jesus is saying to you, regardless of where you are on that spectrum, the Father loves you. That's what he's saying. The Father welcomes you. So come home and receive his love. And if you're already home, if that's where you already are, then sit down and receive his love. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to work for it. The last couple of times I preached, and Megan used one of the scriptures that I've used the last couple of times at the start of this service, uh, the one in, at the start of Hebrews, I've, I've emphasized that Jesus and God are one. They are the same. And that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's been my hope that through Jesus' actions, we could actually get a, a glimpse of the Father. So in talking about the Father today, um, this parable, Jesus is not modeling what the Father is like. He's flat out telling you what the Father is like. like he's making it really, really obvious. He is, he's being very clear. He's telling you. So I want to say a couple of things about the Father. And this story often gets called the prodigal son the story of the prodigal son. And I've got some artwork up here behind me. This story has inspired artwork over the centuries. The one, you might be able to see it on your screen. You might, you might not. Uh, but I encourage you to look up the prodigal, the return of the prodigal son by Rembrandt. This is from the 1600s. As I said, it's inspired a lot of art over the years and it's, it's amazing. But the prodigal son, the word prodigal, what does it mean? The word prodigal means wastefully, or recklessly extravagant, giving or yielding profusely, lavish, lavishly abundant, or a person who spends or has spent his or her money or substance with wasteful extravagance. So yeah, that does describe the, the youngest son. And you could argue that it sort of describes the older son in different ways. But when I look at words like lavish, I'm, I'm reminded of another character in this story. And it's so obvious to me that it's talking about the Father. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has what on us? Lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And this description here in 1 John 3, 1, it, it just fits in that parable in describing the father. Was the father wasteful in this? Yeah, completely. He was very much alive and his son says, I want my share. He, he goes, yes. He says, okay. He doesn't say, of course you're not having that. How rude. Don't ask me that. When the son returns, he's not like, get inside. He's... he's in response to what the son had done, he was lavishing his love upon them. What does the father say? After bowling his son over and interrupting the speech, 
He doesn't say, well, I hoped you learned your lesson. That's not, that's not what the father's saying. If you want to know about the father, look at what he's not saying to this son in this moment. He doesn't say, well, I hope you're ready to set, settle down and you better make it up to your mother. No, there's a party being thrown. That's the father's love for you. Now, that's jarring for us. And it's jarring for my year 10 student from a few years ago because they, they don't get it. That's because we live in a world where we expect um, to, in order to make things right, that there must be punishment and there must be vengeance. Well, that's not the father. God uses love, mercy, compassion and restoration to make things right. It is clear to me that the father made things right in this parable, but he did not do it by using punishment and vengeance. Love, mercy, compassion, restoration. Let us not use the world's ways of making things right, but instead look at God's ways of restoration, of love, mercy, and compassion. I'm sure the older brother thought it was going to go the other way, along with the Pharisees listening. Where are you on this? The last thing I want to talk about is the word repentance, which was clearly illustrated. It was clearly mentioned at the end of the previous two parables. But the word repentance is not in this one. So where is it? Not directly mentioned. I'm going to tell you that it's there, but whereabouts is it? So it comes down to our biblical definition of, of repentance. There's a theologian called Frank Stagg, and his biblical definition for, of repentance is this. The doctrine of repentance, as taught in the Bible, is a call to persons to make a radical turn from one way of life to another. The repentance called for throughout the Bible is a summons to a personal, absolute, and ultimate unconditional surrender to God as sovereign. Though it includes sorrow and regret, it is more than that. It is a call to conversion from self-love, self-trust, and self-assertion to obedient trust and self-commitment to now live for God and his purposes. It is a change of mind that involves a conscious turning away from wrong actions, attitudes, and thoughts that conflict with a godly lifestyle and biblical commands, and an intentional turning toward doing that which the Bible says pleases God. In repenting, one makes a complete change of direction, a 180-degree turn toward God. That's the biblical definition of repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. In the Merriam-Webster dictionary, Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, not the worship leader, Merriam-Webster definition of metanoia, which is the Greek word for repentance, sums it up beautifully. It's a transformative change of heart. It's a change of mind. It's not, repentance is not about saying sorry to God on a daily basis. It's not about that. There are people who generally believe that if they die without saying sorry to God for a sin, whether a known sin or an unknown sin, that they would not enter the kingdom of heaven. This fear-based approach to repentance and forgiveness is not the gospel. It's not what repentance is about. The gospel is not about being scared that we've forgotten to say sorry to God. The gospel is not about fear. The gospel is about perfect love, which in my Bible casts out fear. Okay? 
fearing that you may have forgotten to say sorry to God is no way to live your life. And it will keep you from experiencing the true freedom that Christ offers. You won't know how to walk in it. So where is repentance in this parable? Firstly, it's not in anything he said. What he said is an acknowledgement, as I said before, a confession. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. He says that. He doesn't say sorry for it. He just grovels. (laughs) But the son's repentance. Now, work with me here. Jesus used these parables as illustrations to show us what the father is like. I think we could all go, yep, yep, we agree with that. Meaning there probably was not an actual farmer who had a hundred sheep. There probably was not. I mean, it probably has happened. But but Jesus, Jesus is using them as an illustration. If that's the case, we can expect to see within each line of these parables God's truth coming towards us in other ways. So I, I suggest to you that the son's repentance is in his action. Verse 20, it's really easy, simple to miss. So he returned home to his father. That's it. I don't think it's even in verse 17 when, he, when it says he came to his senses. No, I, I don't think he came to his senses because he felt bad. Like he, he felt hungry is why he came to his senses. He's like, hmm, my father's servants are much more well-fed than I am. There's a problem here. All right. I, I think that's how he was thinking. Well, not a repentant action, but he returned home to his father. Remember, repentance, a radical turn from one way of life to another, a change of mind, a conscious turning away, an intentional turning toward what pleases God, a complete change of direction, 180 degree turn toward God. And that's what he did as soon as he returned home to his father. The repentance in this instance was in his action. He did all of that the moment he started walking home. And the father loved it. He didn't stop and go, "Mm, now why are you coming home? Oh, do you think you need more from me? (laughs) No. The father was all over it. And all over the son. Go to the band, come back up please. Which group of people was Jesus wanting to bring to repentance in this story? Remember, Jesus is talking to two very different groups. Tax collectors and sinners on one side, Pharisees, teachers of the law on the other. It's obvious to me that Jesus wants them all to repent. Who repents in the story? Which side? We see it, whether you want to take the position that repentance is groveling on your knees, well, you can see that the son does that, but he actually returns to the father, which is what the biblical definition of repentance is. He does that. But the older son basically stands there and says, I deserve this. (laughs) I, I see no repentance from the older son. So where are you there?
using all of this message, I'm now going to take communion. Thanks, Andy. That was great. Andy came to take my little podium away. But I hadn't got my slice of bread out, so... And I'm also trying to take the gladder buff with one hand. It's amazing. Oh, look, people are everywhere coming to help. So, oh, my dear wife. I was going to rip off a piece of bread. So, can you hold the bread down? Completely unrehearsed. You can take the podium away now if you like. Thank you. I have what I need. So with this story, that is my communion message today. Wherever you are, wherever you are in this story, whether you are the lost son, whether you are the son that stayed at home thinking he's doing everything right, I want you to take this moment to stop and know that you are loved. You are loved. You are so welcome home. You are loved. You might have walked away like the, the younger son did. The father says to you, come home. I don't want to hear you groveling. <laughs> Just come home. We're going to throw a party. And you're the guest of honor. Jesus, we just thank you. We thank you that you illustrated to us exactly who the Father was. You showed it in your action. Sometimes, God, when, as we know, your disciples couldn't see it in your action because they asked you, show us the Father, which I'm sure you found funny, Jesus. And frustrating. So sometimes you had to say it. The Father is like this. We thank you that you made a way for us to know the Father and to experience communion with you day to day. So wherever you are, we just want to take, whether it's a piece of bread, a biscuit, a bit of toast, some cereal, whatever it is, God, we just want to take the bread and remember what it cost you, Jesus. What it cost you so that we could have access to the Father, so that we could have eternal life, so that we could know the Father. We thank for your body broken, slain before the foundation of the world so that we could enjoy the fullness of our relationship with you day to day. Let's, let's eat together.
Jesus, we thank you for your precious blood that you poured out on that cross. The big picture of the whole story of the Bible is redemption. And whilst the prodigal son story is not explicitly about what you did on the cross, it's part of the big picture. It's part of the whole story. We are welcome home because of what you did on the cross, because of your blood. We are welcomed in, no matter how far we've run. Even if we've stayed at home thinking we've done everything right, we've strived, we've worked, we've done everything so so hard to get in. The Father invites you to rest. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood poured out on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We take the cup. The band's going to sing a song now. We just want to invite you, if you you need prayer do we have a a slide that people can contact if they need a prayer request send your prayer request to lifechurchacc.org.au prayer requests maybe you've walked far away from God if that's the case I say that's okay come home he's waiting Or maybe you're sitting thinking, oh, I've done nothing wrong. And you want prayer for that because you you can't understand the difference between the two. Please write to the website. And we can give you some resources on how to, to sit and just receive the Father's love. So we just invite you in this time, especially if you need to write into the website, please do that. But why don't we just spend some time now just in worship for all he's done for us. Thank you.